Now, I'm going to be tempted to uh, say this at the introduction of all three of my lectures. And so in lieu of doing that, I want to just say this once, that I had, I had grand ideas as I uh, thought about what I would cover and how I would order the material. And as I got going, and in the end, it really uh, uh, took a different turn and, and uh, went in a completely different direction. And that leaves me, of course, with a little bit of self-doubt. But I am trusting that in the process of preparation that this is the, the Lord's intention uh, and the Lord's design to take these things uh, unto our edification. But that, that leads into the consideration of what, what direction did I take. Well, all three of these lectures have something in common in that I am either offering or interacting with pre-modern ways of, of interpreting the, the text of Scripture, pre-modern ways of, of reading certain aspects and interpreting certain aspects of uh, Genesis chapter 1 in particular. And in all three of these lectures, Augustine, because as I understand the Latin, that's more in keeping with the the pronunciation of Latin. I know Augustine uh, sounds more intellectual, but um, I, I think it's, it's Augustine. Augustine, <laughs> Augustine, for better or for worse, features prominently in all three of these, these lectures. So a pre-modern uh, way of interacting with Genesis 1 and the interpretive um, exegetical history, if you will. Now, I've titled this particular lecture Creation and transcendentals, and I had, again, originally intended uh, one thing by this and, and ended up with something entirely different, but, but I think that it's still true to the title. Now, what I'm after is contained within the opening paragraph of chapter 4 of our confession. So, in chapter 4 of our confession, paragraph 1, we confess this. In the beginning... It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. The term transcendentals has a history that reaches into the 13th century, and it is not to be confused with the term transcendence. Right? Transcendence refers to that which is beyond all beings. So tra- to, to tr- transcend is to be beyond all beings and therefore has no commonality with all other beings. Whereas transcendentals... It actually refers to to that which is common. It refers to to that which is a common feature of all created reality that transcends, but transcends what? Well, it it transcends the categorical particularities of quality, of quantity, of time and space, and so on. And so the transcendentals are those things that characterize all reality. Or we could say well, created reality especially, but we could say they are the essential attributes of being itself. And they are, they are universally recognized 
to be unity, truth, and goodness. Unity, truth, and goodness. Now, this is not intended to be a, um, a philosophical lecture um, on the nature of transcendentals themselves, but I do want to say this, that the traditional triad, the traditional triad of power, wisdom, and goodness, such as we find here mentioned in our confession, is itself rooted in these so-called transcendentals, unity, truth, and goodness. And, and perhaps the most important thing to understand here is that the transcendentals represent that which characterizes all reality. All things that, that possess being, possess unity, truth, and goodness, and, and therefore in this way, all things reflect their creator who just is the one, the true, and the good. And so if we were to develop those transcendentals in particular, this, this, this which characterizes all created reality, the unity, truth, and goodness, it will bring us back, it will point us back to, to the creator in whom and, and who is the one, the true, and the good itself. So all creatures are vestiges, to use the language of Augustine, all creatures are vestiges of their creator. The creator has left his footprint in his creation. And the transcendentals highlight, we could say, the vestigial character of all reality. The unity, truth, and goodness of all things are the general and universal conditions of all things that, that point beyond the particular things in which they are found. They they point beyond them themselves. By these three, because we could say they are essential attributes uh, of every being, every creature to some degree manifests those essential attributes belonging to the divine being, from whom and according to whom and for the sake of whom all things have their being. We're going to kind of work this out just a little bit before we we move on. This is this is how uh, one um, theologian has said it. Since the first principle, so speaking of of God as Creator, since the first principle is the most exalted and utterly perfect, it follows that in it, or in him, are found the highest and the most universal properties of being to the highest degree. These are the one, the true, and the good. Now, it would be too ambitious, um, this is my way of letting myself off the hook, it would be too ambitious uh, to try and to demonstrate how unity, truth, and goodness are, are translated into that triad uh, of, of power, wisdom, and goodness. In fact, I'll probably say something about this in, in my second lecture. But, but perhaps it is helpful to keep this in mind. The power, wisdom, and goodness of God are manifest in and through the things that he has made precisely because the unity, truth, and goodness, unity, truth, and goodness that characterize all reality leads us to a knowledge of God as, as the efficient 
as the exemplary and as the final cause of every creature. We're going to work this out. The existence of every created effect, that's what creation is, an effect. The existence of every created thing, every created effect, is a vestige of its one divine origin And therefore, everything reveals the divine power of its efficient cause. Just as the truth of all things is a vestige of the truth of its divine exemplar, and therefore reveals the divine wisdom of its exemplary cause. And we could say as well that the goodness of all things is a vestige of the divine goodness unto which all else has been ordered and so reveals the divine beneficence of their final cause. Now, that's a mouthful. I'm going to say more about that and try to flesh it out in just a minute. But first, um, what is it that I hope to accomplish in this lecture? In the opening paragraph of chapter 4 on creation, it occurs to me that most everything in that paragraph expressed in it can be explicitly traced back to the text of Genesis chapter 1. Most everything. I think there are two exceptions. There are two, there are two and the two exceptions are, are the two triads, the two triadic phrases, if you will, in paragraph 1. And so the one is the explicitly Trinitarian reference, right, to the, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that the first lecture in the morning tomorrow. The other is the phrase, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. And, and it occurs to me that both, although they are not explicit references drawn from from Genesis 1, both feature prominently in the history of interpretation, that is, pre-modern interpretation of Genesis 1. And so I want to consider the latter of these two uh, uh, triadic phrases, right? The uh, power, wisdom, and goodness. I want to consider power, wisdom, and goodness here from the perspective of how it shows up in the history of interpretation of the creation account itself. And interestingly, within the history of its interpretation, discussion about the manifestation of God's power, wisdom, and goodness most frequently arises as a defense of and an explanation for why God made all things in the space of six days. Let me... Let me say that again because we're going to kind of take a step back and leave that in, in the shadow for a minute and we'll come back to it at the end. But in, in this history of interpretation, discussion about the manifestation of God's power, wisdom, and goodness, particularly as a consideration of Genesis chapter 1, most frequently arises as a defense of and an explanation for why God made all things in the space of six days. And as we'll see, the the, the burden of older exegetes was to answer the question, 
why, why God created and made all things in the space of six days as opposed to creating all things instantaneously. Does that sound familiar? You know of someone who had that interpretation? That was, that was Augustine. Um, and so it's the question, why? Why? Why did he create all things in the space of six days and not instantaneously? And the consistent answer was that it more greatly manifested his power, his wisdom, and his goodness than had he instantaneously created all things in perfect form. And as we'll see, this burden was placed upon the tradition by an argument that had been imposed upon the text by Augustine. And so this, we said, Augustine features in these lectures, for better or for worse, this is maybe not the for better. But he does set a trajectory that, um, that, that has some very positive uh, uh, fruit from, from it, even in disagreement with him. And so I would propose that, that the, inclusion, the inclusion of these two things in paragraph one, I didn't, I didn't run this by our, our resident scholar, but I'm proposing that the inclusion of these two things in paragraph one the manifestation of his power, wisdom, and goodness, and then the phrase, in the space of six days, that, that these two things together ought to, at the very least, it ought to cause our minds to recall a particular exegetical tradition that largely centered upon the first two verses of Genesis 1. So with this in mind, let us turn our attention to Genesis 1, and particularly verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> we begin at the beginning, where we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1. The overall function of this verse is not merely a summary statement of the whole work of creation in its completed and perfected form, as if the actual description is then limited to to the things that that follow. As we'll see, taking it in this way, taking verse 1 as just simply an overarching summary statement of of creation in all of its uh, perfect form, taking it in this way would leave us with no account for where the formless lump of matter in verse 2 came from. Rather, verse 1, verse 1 recounts the very first created act of God and the beginning, the very beginning of something from nothing, as we've already heard. And this is further confirmed, right, by the, the verb that's used, which is, which is translated to create. The verb used here is Hebrew bara, which is used sparingly, and it's used only of God. Unlike the word frequently translated um, made or formed, which conveys the idea of something that is, is formed out of some pre-existing matter, sort of like how a potter uh, forms a, a vessel out of a lump of clay, or The language of Hebrews 11 and verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were formed or or made by the word of God. This word, bara, on the other hand, does not presuppose existing matter. 
This word in the Hebrew is able to convey and often does convey the idea of something coming into being from out of nothing. So God, in, in, in the beginning, gave a beginning to the heavens and the earth, not out of some prior stuff, but out of absolutely nothing. In verse 1, he creates all things from nothing, and we see the, the initial lump of clay of, of, of that which has come from nothing in verse 2, which he then goes on, he then begins to form or to make in verse Three and so on in the space of six days. Flipping, flipping that consideration on, uh, uh, the other way around, um, going from verse 2 and then to verse 1, Hugh of St. Victor put it this way. He says, Therefore God not only made all things that were made from matter, but he himself created the matter of all things from nothing. And our confession, I think, uh, acknowledges the same when it, when it says, it seems to imply a, a, a distinction to be worked out, it pleased God to create or make, form the world and all things. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo, from nothing, out of nothing, it highlights an immensely important distinction. We've already heard um, much about this uh, today, and um, I don't think there's a lot of repetition here, but just building on uh, what Dr. Barcellus has already said, the distinction that's wrapped up in the doctrine of creation out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, is the so-called creator-creature distinction. In fact, creation from out of nothing if we can speak that way, helps to clarify the nature of, of what it is to be a creature, to be creature, and conversely, what it is to be God. There are fundamentally two kinds of being. There are fundamentally two kinds of being. That which exists per se, and so being that exists through itself, and that which exists per aliud, that is, being that exists through another. Only two kinds of being, being that exists through itself and being that exists through another. Because created things have come into being from out of nothing, and nothing is not something, as we heard. And so because created things have come into being from out of nothing by the creative act of another... Creatures are therefore entirely contingent, entirely dependent upon another for their very existence. And so to be creature means to exist per aliud, through another, which entails three things. So we say this, that every creature, every creature has its being from another, according to another, and for the sake of another. So from another, according to another, and for the sake of another. Whereas the creator differs here from the creatures in all three respects. He does not have his being, have his being through another, but through himself. 
And, and therefore, his entire mode of existing differs from our mode of existing. Whereas we exist from another, according to another, and for another, God alone exists from or of himself, according to himself, and for the sake of himself. Now, this is where I'm, I probably am foolishly ambitious, but I want to open this up a little bit um, so that we can understand the distinctions, these distinctions, these three distinctions in particular for ourselves. So from another, according to another, and for the sake of another. They're describing the creature, of course. I want to open this up um, so that we understand these distinctions um, but also that we might catch a glimpse of how these distinctions, how these distinctions match up um, and, and manifest the power, the wisdom, and the goodness of God. The power and the wisdom and the goodness of God, whereby he is the efficient cause, the exemplary cause, and the final cause of all things. We are created from the efficacy of his power. We are created according to the exemplary wisdom of God. And we are created for the enjoyment of his perfect goodness. So looking at these three things um, relatively briefly. First, consider what it means that God has his being from or of himself. What are we saying by this? God has his being from or of himself and not from or of of another. It means that he has no beginning. As we already heard, he just is. We're told here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he himself has no beginning. He exists in the timeless eternity of his own infinite blessedness. A beginning implies the start of something, along with its duration, its existence throughout time. The Lord does not begin to be, he does not begin to exist in successive moments of time. And time itself is a, is a creation of God, as we've already heard. Time is nothing more than the measurement of the duration of our creaturely existence. Creatures exist in time because they have a beginning and a duration and an end. We exist in the, in the ever-changing succession of moments. And, and time is simply the, the, the measurement of those successions. And the beginning in Genesis 1-1 refers to the very first moment and, and creation of that succession. The absolute beginning spoken of here is itself a, a creation of God. The beginning is also, it is also something that began to be from nothing. For there to be, for there to be a beginning there must be a beginning of something. And so in the beginning refers to the moment that time began to exist by the very act of God whereby he brought forth something, whereby he brought forth the heavens 
and the earth. I forget how you put it, um, that it is a concomitant, concomitant act. It, um, um, Rich doesn't remember what he said. <laughs> or is he just refusing to help me now? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the creation of the heavens and the earth is the very act that began the beginning of time, which itself is something out of nothing. But God has no beginning because he does not exist from another. It is his essence to exist of himself without ever beginning to be. He is existence itself. He is being itself. Because he just is the power by which he exists, he himself is the sole and entire explanation, not only for his own existence, but for the existence of everything else. In this way, the very existence of all creatures, since they do not have within themselves the explanation for their own existence, every creature, therefore, testifies to and manifests the power of God as their efficient cause. In other words, the efficacious power upon which they depend for their very existence. Second, Consider what it means that God has his being according to himself and not according to another. And it follows from the first. Because he has his being from himself and not from another, he also possesses his being according to himself and not according to another. But what does this mean? It means that he is the truth according to which he is what he is. He is the truth according to which he is what he is. And I think the best way to explain this is in contrast to our creaturely mode of existing. You can think of an artist and his art, his artwork. An artist always forms his piece of art According to, we could say, according to the, the prototype or the, the archetype or the exemplary art in his mind. A- according to which the artwork itself is not only made, but also is measured and judged. Is it a, is it a good piece of art? Is it, basically, is it what the artist intended? Does it conform to the art in his mind? when God formed and fashioned our first parents, for instance, where did he get the very idea according to which he made them to be what they are in distinction from other things? Where did he get the idea? What are they, what are they modeled after? Surely they possess the truth of, of what it means. They, they, they as, as, as all humans do, possess the truth of what it means to be human, existing, as it were, according to a human nature. But where did the very idea 
or the pattern or the truth of humanness itself originate. According to which every human is what it is and is measured and and judged to be more or less what it ought to be. Remember, there there was nothing. There was no thing outside of of himself, outside of the Lord himself, to whom the Lord could look for the pattern according to which all things would be be determined and defined to be what they are. And so, again, to whom did he look? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 13, the Lord says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? It's a rhetorical question. As the wise master builder and the skillful artist, he considered what he knows best, himself, and all the ways in which his divine perfections can be imitated and mirrored in creaturely ways. In other words, he looked to himself He looked to the truth itself according to which he is what he is, and he looked to his own essence as imitable, as, that is, as it may be imitated and reflected in finite and and creaturely ways in the creature. And so we are not only brought into being from him, But all things are what they are according to him, according to his likeness. So many vestiges of divine truth and wisdom. All of this stands in contrast to God himself, who, because he exists from himself, exists also according to himself. He is neither made nor measured nor nor judged by another, unlike us. Unlike us, he is not what he is. He is not what he is so long as he conforms to the idea of another. He just is the wisdom according to which he is wise. He just is the wisdom according to which he is the truth, according to which he is is what he is. He's truth itself. And therefore... He is the truth that grounds all other truths. He is the rationale for why we are what we are. He is the pattern and exemplar according to which all things are what they are and according to which the truth of all things may be measured and and judged to be more or less what they ought to be, what they were created to be. In this way, the truth and form of all creatures, since they do not have within themselves the rationale for why they are what they are or, or what they ought to be, every creature, every creature, therefore, points beyond itself, manifests the truth and the wisdom of God as their exemplary cause. In other words, the exemplary wisdom upon which the truth of what they are and what they ought to be 
is objectively and irreducibly grounded in God himself. Third, consider what it means that God has his being for the sake of himself and not another. For the sake of himself and not another. Because he has his being from himself and not from another, according to himself and not according to another, he also possesses his being for himself as an end in and of himself and not for the sake of another. Dr. Barcellus has already um, touched on this. In other words, God is not, as Augustine would put it, God is not to be used or enjoyed for the sake of something else, but is to be loved and enjoyed for his own sake. Remember, everything exists for the sake of something. Everything exists for the sake of some ultimate purpose or end in relation to which each thing obtains its place, its perfection, its rest, and, and its very reason for existing. Precisely because all creatures derive their existence from another, they necessarily exist for the sake of another. They exist for a purpose, an end that is given to them by the one who made them to be what they are and made them in just the right way that they might obtain that end for the sake of which they exist. No creature is an end in itself to be loved and enjoyed for its own sake. If God, again, Rich has already said this, that if God were to exist for the sake of something else, that something else would be God. All creatures exist for God as their chief end precisely because God exists for God as his own chief end. There being no higher end or greater good outside of God himself. And so existing for himself does not mean that he is a God who is not for you in Christ. In fact, to be for you in Christ to be truly for you in this sense, he must fundamentally be for him himself in the way in which we are speaking. To exist for the sake of something is to have your entire existence ordered to that something such that there is no truly ultimately meaningful existence apart from that thing so that our perfection is found in relation to that thing. We're talking here about what Augustine says in the famous line from, the, from his confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. For God, therefore, to exist for his own sake means that he is not in need of anything outside of himself. He does not need you. He does not depend upon you for his perfection or for him to be fully complete or or have a meaningful existence. Dr. Barcellus has already said this creation does not complete him. And so for that very reason, 
because he is all-satisfying and all-sufficient in himself, because he is goodness itself. Our souls are able to find rest in his goodness. Again, precisely because he rests in his own goodness, because he is goodness itself. And because he is in need of nothing, he creates freely, not by necessity, not to be filled, but to overflow. Not stingily, but liberally. And not that he should be perfected by us, but that we should seek and find our perfection in him. God just is the goodness for the sake of which he exists. Goodness itself, in whom is no imperfection. Who, because he is the end for which he exists, is the chief end of all things. He is the desire of all things. He is the reason for the sake of whom all things exist. As Augustine said, he is the ultimate thing to be loved and enjoyed as an end in itself, in himself. He is the one in relation to whom all things find their perfection their purpose, their proper place, in whom we find our greatest good, in whom our souls come to rest. In this way, the goodness and the usefulness of all creatures, since they are not an end in themselves or, or the reason for their own existing, Every creature, therefore, points beyond itself. Every creature may be a thing, but ultimately they are signs. They are signs pointing, pointing to their creator, to their maker. Every creature points beyond itself. The older, this is a digression, but the older um, uh, pre-modern way of, of looking at the world is often called a, a sacramental view of the world. Don't think transubstantiation or something here, but it's, it's a way of, of looking at the world as, as a book. And all creatures are like words written in a book, and words are but signs pointing to realities or pointing back to, to its creator. It's a different way of looking at the world. Everything points beyond itself and manifests the goodness of God as their final cause. In other words, the perfect goodness in relation to which everything finds its ultimate perfection and irreducible end. So there you have it. The, the, the creator-creature distinction worked out a little bit more which, which the doctrine of creation ex nihilo necessarily entails and, and even begins to clarify for us. In the beginning, God who exists of himself, according to himself, and for himself, brought into being from out of absolutely nothing all the stuff of heaven, all the stuff of earth, that it should exist wholly and entirely from God, according to God, and for God. Romans 11.36 For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen.
The whole of our theology, whether it be natural or revealed theology, the whole of our theology is built upon these distinctions. So in this, we have, we have made some progress. It may not be apparent, but we've made some progress toward what I said that we would accomplish. We've seen something of the way in which God, who exists per se through himself, manifests his power, his wisdom, his goodness in his creatures precisely in as much as they, as creatures themselves exist through another, through God in whom we live and move and, and have our being, as, as Paul says. But we have not yet set this within the context of our exegetical tradition as I suggested, as I promised. In order to do that, in the short amount of time that we have, we need to turn our attention to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It may be shocking to us, but verse 2 tells us that the initial condition of all the stuff of heaven and all the stuff of earth that began to exist in verse 1 was less than, initially, was less than complete. In fact, it was formless. It lacked identifiable shape and order and perfection and beauty. This is the description God himself gives to us. It was uninhabited and inhospitable. It was indescribable and unrecognizable. And here's the idea. Upon its inception, it lacked the fullness of being and the richness of existence that God would shortly give to it, proceed to give to it, over the course of the six days beginning immediately in verse 3. So he creates something like a lump of clay, by analogy, a lump of clay, and begins over the course of six days to form and to make, to fashion, to give form to that that clay. And the looming question is why the Lord would proceed in this way. Why did he not just create all things instantaneously complete and instantaneously perfect? Now, I already said, I alluded to this at the beginning, that this is, in fact, Augustine's question and, and, uh, and the conclusion that he comes to. Augustine maintained that it was beneath, it was... It was beneath the the supreme power, wisdom, and goodness of God to create all things in an initial state of formlessness. And so, in order to rescue God from his own embarrassment, Augustine maintained that in reality, God created all things immediately and simultaneously in a state of perfection. 
the description that we have that follows, he says, in Genesis 1, of his forming the world over the, the course of six days is not what actually happened in time, but is simply described in this way for our, our benefit. And he draws uh, certain uh, benefits that God would stoop down and, and just describe it this way for us. But that ultimately he created all things instantaneously in a single moment, in a state of perfection. Now, the vast majority of the tradition respectfully, always respectfully with Augustine, but respectfully disagreed with him. But Augustine left those after him with the burden of showing how this movement from a formless to a perfectly formed creation does not, in fact, diminish, it is not beneath, it does not diminish God's power, wisdom, and goodness. In this way and and in conjunction with with the, the forming of the world in the space of six days, this triad, power, wisdom, and goodness, emerge within the interpretive tradition of Genesis 1. To argue that the text is to be taken literally as it is, and doing so, in fact, contrary to Augustine, does not diminish, but actually magnifies the power and the wisdom and the goodness of God. And so we may ask, how has the tradition typically answered Augustine's challenge? The question of why God chose to form the world in the space of six days was there on out almost universally, almost universally, majority, let's just say, um, answered in defense of this literal rendering of the text, plain reading of the text, that contrary to Augustine's assumptions, God's doing so in the space of six days actually magnifies, as I said, the power of the wisdom and the goodness of God more clearly than had he created all things instantaneously in a formal state of perfection. So looking at it, then, power, wisdom, and goodness one more time. First, we see here a greater, not a lesser magnification of God's power in the space of six days. So creating all things in an initial state of formlessness is no sign of a lack of power on God's part. First, first, we need to say, we need to acknowledge that he does not do here what he does in the space of six days. He, he does not do what he does out of some kind of necessity. He could have created everything perfectly formed had he desired to do so instantaneously and in a single moment. Rather, he did what he did that we might more clearly see his power, see his freedom to create without any compulsion laid upon him to do so in a particular way. And so he does so in a way that we maybe wouldn't have done it this way had we been him. But he is free to do so and he demonstrates it to us. Secondly, still thinking about power, we see the perfection of his power in creating this formless lump of clay in that 
though it was relatively formless, verse 2, verses 1 and 2, though it was relatively formless, we see in it, we, we can imagine in it a, a potent seedbed of the entire universe. A potent seedbed of the entire universe containing within itself the potential of all things. It's, it's like the way that, that, um, that an acorn contains within itself the potency to become a mighty oak. Thirdly, although Augustine agrees that, that God ultimately created all things from out of nothing, he, he agrees with that, of course, the Lord knows... The Lord knows that we have a very difficult time imagining such a thing as nothing. We have a very difficult time thinking about what is nothing. We think it's this something that, what is nothing? What is no thing? How do you even talk about no thing? And so he has painted us a clearer picture of his power by giving us the power by which he brings all things out of nothing. He, he gives to us this clearer picture of his power by giving us a picture of, of something that is very near to nothing, a formless lump of clay, and then proceeds to impress more clearly upon our minds how he has indeed brought out of that nothingness press upon our minds more greatly our dependence, in fact, our dependence upon his power for our very being. He illustrates the point for us. Fourthly, by forming the world in the space of six days, he allowed the angels to bear witness to his work of power. Job 38 and verses 6 and 7, to what were, to what were its foundations fastened? Or who had laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang, the angels, when they sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And of course, this leaves us a testimony as well, a testimony of the ease with which he made all things. It is, it is in the work of the six days that he shows us that he had only to speak a word, let there be, and so there was. Psalm 33 and verse 9. For so he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Okay, secondly, <clears throat> we also see here a greater, not a lesser, manifestation of God's wisdom. It would have been one thing had he left his creation in a state of formlessness. But instead, he created it unformed in order to form it and to do so in a way that more clearly manifests to us his wisdom in how he defines and how he distinguishes and how he orders all things. One thing relative to another being being ordered within the order of being. In other words, a place for everything and everything in its place. As you go into verse 3, in the work of the six days, you have, you have the works of distinction where he is distinguishing things. 
So by virtue of his works of distinction over the span of the six days, right? You have light distinguished from darkness, heaven from earth, and so on. We are taught ourselves to distinguish, as Turretin says. We are taught to walk in the light rather than the darkness, and so on. We are taught to distinguish our own place within the created order, under God, but over the beasts of the earth. We see here something of the mind of our creator as he expresses his mind, speaks his mind. That we would not, uh, the mind of our creator, we see a picture of it that we would not have otherwise seen. So that we are not only taught to distinguish, but ultimately to distinguish the truth of all things in relation to God. In relation to his mind on the matter, so to speak in relation to whom all things receive their form, in relation to whom all things will be measured and judged. Herein, we more clearly are shown our dependence upon him who formed us, that ultimately we might also look to him to reform us by the grace of his gospel. Okay, thirdly and lastly, we also see here a greater, not a lesser, manifestation of God's goodness. Once again, he did not leave his creation in a state of imperfection. He created it imperfect, in a sense, in order to perfect it, and to do so in a way that would more clearly manifest his goodness as the end for which all things exist, and and in relation to which all things find their rest and their perfection. It's quite appropriate that the divine works be brought forth from from imperfection to perfection. He, He does this in order to show us, in order to teach us and instruct us more clearly that every perfection comes from God, that we depend upon him, for our own perfection, right? Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. By beginning with an imperfect lump of clay and then proceeding to perfect it, he is more clearly teaching us that all things, but especially ourselves, are utterly dependent upon God for our own perfection, for our own purpose, for our chief end and greatest good. And so we, we are in this way more clearly taught not to seek created things as an end in themselves, but to be led by them back to God who is the overflowing fountain of goodness itself. We are in this way taught to cry out to God to fully form what he has begun to reform by means of the gospel. And indeed, even to bring to completion the work that he has begun within us. And so to the question of why God would create all things in the space of six days and not simultaneously as Augustine had maintained, Turretin, Francis Turretin replies, Turretin says, he created all things, he formed all things, he made all things in the space of six days 
to set forth his wisdom, power, and goodness more distinctly by parts in this magnificent work and more clearly indicate the mutual connection, dependency, and order of all things. And we could, if time permitted us, multiply such references And so I would propose that the inclusion of these two things in paragraph one, the manifestation of his power, wisdom, and goodness, along with the phrase in the space of six days, ought to call to mind a particular exegetical interpretive tradition that was aimed at giving a response, a a respectful response to Augustine's own interpretation of the text of Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, 